this SageAPH podcast, we will go back in the USSR. I'm Alfredo Morabia, and I'm the editor-in-chief of the journal. This is October 8th, 2017. With my three guests who conduct research in Russia, we will review the evolution of access to abortion and contraception, the magnitude and treatment of drug addiction, and the policy towards tobacco smoking in the former Union of Soviet Socialist Republic, or USSR, and in Russia today. Russia was the largest of the socialist Soviet republics. You may be fascinated, as I was, by the new light that this set of papers sheds on the continuities and discontinuities in health between the USSR, which has existed between October 1917 and December 1991, and current Russia. We will first discuss with Michelle Rifkin-Fish, who is a cultural anthropologist, what she learns while she was in Russia about abortion, contraception, and drug addiction, continuities and discontinuities between the former USSR and today's Russia. I will then call Trish Stark. She's a historian, and she currently researches tobacco use in Russia from the late 19th to the late 20th century. Finally, I will summarize the message of this set of papers with historian Nikolai Kremensov, who, with AJPH history editor Ted Brown, curated this special section of the journal. So, let's call Michelle Rifkin-Fish, an associate professor at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Hello. Yes, Michelle. Good morning. How are you? Hi. I'm fine and you. Uh, I, I saw you were already waiting, so I just... Oh. Uh, but I can call back at, at 8.45. It's better for you. Well, this is... I'm okay. I just wasn't sure how long it was going to take me to get everything um, set up. And it was easier than I thought, so I'm ready. <laughs> that's that's very wise, I can tell you. Thank you so much. So, Michelle, where are you? I'm in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And what uh, brought you to study uh, those issues related to Russia, like uh, abortion and addiction? Yes. Yeah, so, in 1991, I began graduate school at Princeton, and this was right as the Glasnost and perestroika reforms were ending and the Soviet Union was just about to collapse. And um, I met a postdoctoral fellow at the, Carol, uh, at the Princeton Population Center who was studying abortion in the Soviet Union and was very interested in trying to um, figure out ways to reduce the large numbers. And he and I became friends. I was studying the Russian language, and he was studying English, and um, we started to become friends. And it was a wonderful opportunity to meet someone who was at the forefront of trying to create a contraceptive culture to promote the use of routine contraception in place of routine abortion. And so I originally planned to write my PhD dissertation on abortion and, and the contra- change to contraception. Um, and I ended up, for other reasons, doing work more on maternity care, but have always been fascinated in following the changes from routine abortion to uh, using contraception. And my work with drug abuse actually is 
quite new. I um, have continued to stay very closely connected to Russia and Russian public health uh, processes. And I met a uh, another activist and scholar who is working in the field of drug uh, prevention and treatment of HIV. And she really interested me in what's going on and the ways in which in such a stigmatized context, um, activists are trying to promote government intervention to help people that are using drugs. And and how do you do that in a, in a place where the government really doesn't care about them? Mm-hmm. And so, tell, me, tell me, Michelle, just, just a, a parenthesis. So you speak Russian. Yes. I started studying Russian as an undergraduate in, in college. And, uh, and also you go there. I mean, part of your work is, is uh, to work directly in Russia or do you work only right. on documents? No, I, as a cultural anthropologist, um, my research has always involved working in the field. So being in Russia, meeting with people, using Russian with them to understand not only the answers to my questions, but how they express themselves, the metaphors, the ways that they talk and interact with each other. And so I've spent, um, I try to go yearly for about, well, sometimes up, up to a month now. When I did my original dissertation research, I lived there for a year and immersed myself into the um, public health and, and maternity hospitals and, and and did what anthropologists do, which is participant observation field work. Wow. And, and where did you live in, in Russia for a year? I lived in St. Petersburg. And for the first six months or so, I lived with an elderly couple who knew no English and lived really, really on the outskirts of town. So I experienced what it was like to travel on public transportation and to walk in the icy walkways that aren't always cleared. And um, I got to understand life from inside the society. And after about six months, I I moved into an apartment that I rented myself and was able then to invite people to my home. And that was a really good thing, too, because I was able to participate in the hospitality that's so central to that culture. And that taught me a lot about being what it's like to be a member of Russian society. But in those conditions, were there drug addiction around you? Were there people seeking abortion? I mean, were you in contact with those types of problems too? Well, it's interesting. Um, Abortion was extremely common. And when I was working and studying in the maternity hospital, women would come to the doctor when they were in their first trimester. And the first thing that the doctor would ask is, do you plan to keep the pregnancy? The assumption was that people make their decisions about giving birth or they make their reproductive decisions after a pregnancy has been conceived. And that really struck me. Um, Women talked about having abortions uh, similar to the way we might talk about having a root canal. It's something that happens. It's not pleasant, but you deal with it and move on. So it was quite routine. And and there were then these professionals and activists who were trying to change that and to create more of a understanding of using contraception habitually in order to prevent unwanted pregnancy. Drug addiction, I saw less, but I know that in parts of 
the former Soviet Union and Russia in particular, it was developing. And it was in the 90s that things were really, really um, just blooming in terms of the illicit drug trade and the access to heroin and opiates. And um, I know that in certain areas, more in the um, Ural Mountains and the Far East, I was aware that this was happening, but I didn't exper experience that among the people I knew. And, and so uh, according to your article, if I understand well, there's some continuity between the Soviet and the Russian uh, policy towards drug addiction in more repressive approaches. Yes. So I, I think that's very true. The Soviet Union, for the majority of the Soviet era, refused to acknowledge that people were using drugs or heroin was seen as a problem of the West. And that was, you know, the way that the Soviet ideology tried to distinguish its society from Western kind of what they would say were morally depraved societies. Um, of course, these drugs were being used, but there was much more control um, over the borders. And so they weren't as prevalent and, and as um, available. But the Russian government since the 90s has continued the policy of trying to ignore the um, prevalence and to kind of just stigmatize people who get involved with drugs. And that policy has led them to be very opposed to any kind of substitution, opiate substitution treatment, or even really um, any kinds of evidence-based approaches to prevention. Um, and that's it, what's interesting here, too, is that in Ukraine, you have a different approach, and opiate substitution has been institutionalized there. And so one of the things that I talk about in the article, drawing on some work of Ukraine, uh, scholars who work in Ukraine is that when um, the Soviet or the Russian government recently annexed Crimea and made it part of Russia, um, they immediately stopped the opiate substitution treatment and many people uh, were left without any care and some died. So it's, it's a curious situation. Why is Russia continuing the Soviet policies when other post-Soviet countries are not? And what I think is going on is a great deal of stigma that, you know, if we can just sort of say these are evil people who don't deserve care, the problem will go away. And of course it doesn't. It's incredible also because uh, even in the United States, in, in some uh, very conservative state like Indiana, they finally accepted to give uh, clean syringes Yes. You know, to, to drug it, even though it was Republican, they were against it, but there's been an epidemic of HIV and they changed their mind. So in Russia, they seem to be more reluctant to accept evidence-based uh, science. Yeah, I think the person that I've been um, working closely with, Maya Rusakova, is active in trying to make evidence-based policy and and promote the legitimacy of evidence-based research as a motivator for health policy. And what she finds is that the minute that she starts saying, look at all this evidence from the West, 
the Russian conservative members of the government, which are in the majority these days, are saying that's a Western issue, that's Western concerns, that's not appropriate for Russia. And so public health policy and evidence-based research become part of a patriotic or political game of you know where does uh, of a kind of litmus test of saying where does a particular scholar or advocate lie in the west versus russia situation and that's unfortunate because really we have evidence that this can save lives and prevent further harm and morbidity and mortality and they're ignoring that and this is really it's a tragedy yeah that's that's very very interesting and in the uh uh, abortion contraception uh, domain, uh, things are on the other side going better, right? I mean, as you say, there were no access to contraception or almost no before uh, in the Soviet regime, and now it's increasing, right? Yes. So there's been a massive, dramatic, and wonderful transformation since the end of the Soviet era, in as much as um, contraceptives of all types <laughs> are now readily available. And this includes um, oral, the oral contraceptive pill, which was virtually unavailable until the early 1990s. And today, people of younger generation just recognize the pill as their friend and something that's very helpful in preventing unwanted pregnancies and abortions. Um, IUDs are much more available, diaphragms, of course, condoms, and good quality condoms. Because in the Soviet era, there were some some condoms that were available, but they were usually um, poor quality and also difficult to access in the sense that you had to go into a pharmacy and ask for it. And this was seen as shameful and embarrassing, and a person could be shamed by the clerk. So you have now, you know, condoms of very good quality available in the grocery store. You can just pick them up and um, birth control pills. um, Everything is available, even sterilization, which was not legal until the 1990s. and and the abortion rates have gone down dramatically every year we see statistically fewer and fewer abortions and more use of contraception now compared with western countries russia still does have a high abortion rate but when you look over time the trend is continuously reducing. Um, And so that's been a positive thing. It's been a result both of the advent of the market, so the availability of a market of of contraceptive devices, the um, opening up of information about sexuality and prevention, and I would say a popular culture in which um, people are thinking, I want to take control of my life. I should be responsible for my health and contraception and planning pregnancies are all ways in which I can gain some access, some control over my life. And that's a change in mentality and culture and expectations that I think is really helpful for people. Oh, yeah. And I have one last question, actually, Michelle, but based on your you know your your knowledge about the society but also your experience when you were there uh and uh, your article uh, sheds a kind of dark light about the 
public health legacy of the Russian Revolution. Do you think there could be some positive aspect also to that legacy? I do, and I'm so glad you asked that. Um, you know, what, what the Russian Revolution did was established a set of expectations in the society that the government should provide a basic set of opportunities for all residents, that everyone has access to health care, and that should be free and available universally and accessible. And it created a, a very uh, comprehensive set of public health and medical clinics in which in every neighborhood, there were ambulatory clinics, there were um, hospitals, local hospitals, and then tertiary hospitals in the regions. And people knew that medical care was the right of citizenship. Now, it wasn't always well-funded, and the conditions were not as good as people wanted, and the lack of, uh, I would say, patient rights or uh, respect for confidentiality, those were all problems. However, what you have today in Russia is a situation where people say, this is what we should have, and we're not getting it. And I think that in in the United sitting here in the United States, I think we are not even at the point where we recognize that everyone should have access to healthcare as part of being a human being. And so I think we have a lot to learn from what the Soviets and Russians have experienced and, and gone through, both in terms of creating a standard for what it means to be a human being and, a, in, and how societies should react and treat human beings with respect and giving them medical care, but also recognizing that that system has to be funded and it has to serve the interests of the individual. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Thank you very much, Michelle. Thank, Thank you, you for so your time. Much. It's great to talk to a cultural anthropologist. It doesn't <laughs> happen to me every day. And uh, it was very interesting. Thank you so much. This was Have wonderful. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Now let's call Trish Stark. She's an associate professor at University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. Hi, Trish. Hi. How are you, Alfredo? I'm fine. Thank you. Where are you now? I am in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And what, what's, what are you doing there? Uh, well, I'm currently on a research leave, uh, finishing a book on the tobacco experience in Russia in the 20th century. I have another one that I'm doing copy edits on of the tobacco experience in Russia in the czarist period. And what brought you to study this aspect of, uh, of the young uh, USSR in the 1920s? My dissertation was on the public health programs of the Soviets. In particular, I was interested in the ways that the Soviets attempted to create a new revolutionary population especially an urban, um, densely um, socialized population. And for that, disease was an important factor, one of the things that most bedeviled the early state. I see. But, uh, but that population in, in the um, 
rural areas before they they moved to to cities was already smoking a lot, right? Yes, and that's what fascinated me is the with all of the problems that the Soviets were dealing with, that they moved towards this weird incident that I did not expect to find this attack upon tobacco smoking, smoking in particular, not tobacco use in other ways. They mention some types of other tobacco use, but the materials are largely about smoking. And so as I began to investigate that, I found this incredibly lively, early tobacco smoking group that the Russians were very quick to take to tobacco inhalation in the form of peperosi, which is a Russian specific style of smoke that involves a hollow cardboard tube with a cartridge, probably about three to five centimeters in length of tobacco at the end. The cardboard acts as a crude filter. I see. But what surprises me, Trish, is that there's been so much work on the Soviet Union. How come do you can you discover that as you know we've never heard before, and and we're already hundred years ways, after the revolution? Tobacco use is so ingrained in the Russian and Soviet experience as to be almost background noise something that we don't really think about. And as much as we um, envision Russians as smoking constantly, what is also astonishing is the amount of anti-tobacco material that was constantly background noise to the Russian and Soviet experience. The uh, number of anti-smoking posters, the ability of most Russians to quote many an anti-smoking couplet, yet it was just never part of the larger health discussion. It was not something that really people talked about. I found the episode of Semashko's first attack on tobacco in 1920. I found that just mentioned in about four lines in his memoir. And no one had ever really discussed it before. And so as I went back to the archives and found the materials, I found a much larger story than I anticipated. Semashko was uh, Lenin's uh, uh, yes. minister minister of health, right? And tell us, uh, you know, this episode of how uh, Lenin, which was one of the leaders of the Russian Revolution, was marshalling the, the smokers into the toilets <laughs> to was, reduce smoke uh, during the meeting. Lenin was a well-known... Um, health enthusiast in many ways. He was a bicyclist of of renown and was interested in other aspects of health. But his anti-smoking stance was well known. And so in the sealed train that ferried him from across the lines of World War I back into Russia for the revolution that had occurred in February of 1917, but before the revolution of October 1917 that would bring him into power, he was quite a stickler about the behavior of people on the train. He didn't like noise. He had his own space within that train, and he 
really was adamant that there should be no smoking around him. And so he forced the smokers into the bathrooms where soon enough a um, sort of confrontation came about by those that needed to use the bathrooms for their intended purpose and then those that were being pushed there by Lennon's distaste for the smell of tobacco. And he ended up coming up with a rather ingenious idea of giving them tickets so that they could use it occasionally for smoking and the rest could use it for its intended purpose. What's funny is at the same time, a discussion broke out about how they needed to have the um, other revolutionary theorist, Bukharin, with them because he was the best at understanding the, um, uh, the, the pyramids of necessity. And he would know where smoking should go upon that pyramid, whether mm-hmm. it should go above or below the intended use of the bathroom. And so the the Bolsheviks couldn't even uh, find a smoking break in the bathroom without having theory pushed into the the mix. <laughs> that's that's really funny. And so you mean like uh, Stalin and Trotsky and Bukharin and all these guys? They needed a ticket from Lenin to go and smoke in the toilet. Well, this was on the, the train when the they Polit got to Bureau, the um, the meetings of the Politburo. He wouldn't make them go to the bathroom to smoke. He made them go over by the fireplace. So that they could blow their ashes up or blow their smoke up the flue. But then he started to deride them as smoking cockroaches as they sat there in the ashes of the fireplace and were not allowed to the vicinity of the true power. They were off on the edges. They couldn't hear. They couldn't really be heard if they wished to contribute. And so he really was divorcing the smoker from their proximity to power by pushing them over to the fireplace area. And and this, uh, it seems like he had lots, uh, he found lots of resistance uh, within the party and outside of the party uh, against uh, the anti-tobacco campaign that he wanted to launch with Shemashko. Can you tell us more about this opposition and how it limited uh, the, Soviet, the interest uh, of trade and particularly the interest of keeping the state afloat uh, in terms of money in its early days came into direct conflict with Semeshko's attempt to take out tobacco because tobacco was one of the few products they had in reserve that they could keep on producing in the early days and therefore could get some tax money off of uh, the Tax on tobacco had been a strong motivator in the Russian czarist days because as World War I opened, the czar had discontinued the or prohibited alcohol production and therefore discontinued the large amount of money that had been going to the state from the alcohol tax. So as the alcohol excise tax declined, they looked for another one and tobacco made up the difference for the czars. And as the Soviets came into power, they looked towards that same revenue source as something that could help prop up the state. While Lenin was against tobacco use, he was not so adamant that it could not be a source of revenue for the state and a way for the state to prop itself up, especially in the midst of civil war and global resistance to the young state. Thank you very much, uh, Trish. This is uh, fascinating. Oh, thank you so and, much. And uh, thank you for your time. Bye. Bye-bye. I'm now reaching Nikolai Kremensov. 
a professor at University of Toronto. So where are you, Nikolai? I'm in Toronto. And uh, you, you've been to Russia recently? Yes, in uh, the summer, mostly working on the history of biomedical sciences in Russia. Now, analyzing how uh, writers and scientists interacted in the very specific area of science fiction. As both scientists, practicing scientists, wrote some sci-fi, and of course, a large group of professional writers were engaged in the same activity. So I'm trying to compare what similarities and differences and uh, addressing certain issues and questions of contemporary biomedical research were illuminated in, in these two sets of similarly crafted science fiction literature. In 1917, I don't know how many people, when they just heard about the October Revolution, thought it was science fiction. What do you think? Well, uh, in Russia, the genre began before the revolution, and actually one of the leading Bolsheviks, Alexander Bogdanov, wrote what is considered to be the first Bolshevik sci-fi in uh, 1908. Uh, he envisioned a future socialist society on Mars. <laughs> And uh, it's called the Red Star. So it, it alludes both to Mars as a red planet and, of course, the revolution, which was forthcoming. Recently, uh, there's been a much greater access to uh, archives. Yes, definitely. Did they increase our knowledge about the story of public health there? Uh, definitely, you know. Uh, the Russian-era histories, or I should say Soviet-era histories of public health, were almost invariably kind of glorifying, self-congratulating, and built upon the contrast with, say, imperial medical system, which was, you know, very small, very undeveloped, et cetera, et cetera, and with the great progress achieved during the Soviet year. So they tend to emphasize certain things, pass in silence, other things, and basically presented this very teleological view of uh, history of medicine and public health in Russia. Of course, the moment we got to the archives and to particularly internal documents of the Bolshevik party and the higher uh, agencies of the government, the picture which emerged out of these documents differs quite substantially from uh, what was presented in the Soviet-era histories. So what um, would you say are the main characteristics that differs now? Well, the first thing is the, I would say, the kind of negation of teleology. I'll give you a simple example. Uh, in, in every Soviet-era history, you would see the standard uh, formulation that the Bolsheviks envisioned this, you know, specific system, and they built it according to a preconceived ideas and plans. 
in fact, when you look at the documents of the top-level state agencies, Narcom's draft there, the Commissariat of Public Health, uh, you see that the process was much more messier, uh, you know, much more mm -hmm. disorganized, and it was kind of a constant compromise between uh, scientists and physicians trying to pursue their own agendas and the Bolsheviks trying to impose their own visions and ideas. And one last question, Nikolai. Uh, from your perspective, because you're a historian, but you also you go to Russia now, I mean, you have your personal experience. Is there or is there not a public health legacy? Uh, this is a kind of difficult question for me to answer because I go as a visitor, so I see very narrow slice of reality. But it also difficult to answer in simple words because the the very notion of legacy is open to numerous interpretations. There is certainly a kind of very commonly shared feeling that the current health system is not working as well as it was working under the Soviets. This feeling is mostly shared by people of older generation who actually had the experience. And what they missed most, again, according to my very limited exposure, is exactly the basic features of that system. And that is free universal access to health information, technologies, and health providers. Right now, Russia is in a very kind mm -hmm. of peculiar situation in regards of its health system. It is trying to preserve the state-run apparatus of the health system. And at the same time, to modify it along the lines of privatized medical care, which of course creates numerous issues and mm -hmm. problems. Uh, given the enormous size of the country to begin with, and the diminishing prestige of the medical profession in the later, you know, couple of decades, uh, the shortage of personnel is one of the biggest issues, particularly in the rural areas, not urban settings. And, uh, you know, under the Soviet system, uh, the Ministry of Health maintained those rural outposts, which allowed uh, inhabitants of those remote areas access to primary care, which was, you know, kind of a key in maintaining the health status of the population. Right now, those little outposts are mostly closed because there are no, you know, personnel or there are no people who are willing to work in those remote rural areas. And, you know, right now in Canada, we have basically the same issue. It was, you know, very 
serious shortage of primary health, primary care physicians in the north. And the government is trying to solve it by various incentives, etc., etc., etc. But in Russia, at least from as far as I know, this particular area attracts very little attention. There, there was this attempt to create a universal uh, system that was free for everybody that uh, guaranteed actually uh, kind of equal access to the system and this, which would have been the yes. legacy as, of the as revolution, I said, again, is now disappearing. Parts of that system which are still in place, for instance, uh, the Russian Federation still has a ministry of health, which administers all these various um, activities. But as every, you know, bureaucratic system, it operates on its own rules and is much less uh, sensitive to the needs of the population. There is no um, sort of a feedback which would allow the population to exert its, you know, wishes and needs. So in this respect, it is also a legacy of the Soviet system. And it will be very good, I think, in, in general terms, if that particular legacy disappeared and and and, and the soviet uh, and the russian people <laughs> now could have a say in you know exactly what the needs are and how the best to address them and you know many other things unfortunately what the current russian system That's... is trying to emulate from various western models is not that participatory part, but mostly the financial privatized care, you know, and that creates a very striking disbalance mm -hmm. yeah. between the actual needs and the actual epidemiological situation and, you know, the vital statistics, et cetera, et cetera, data which we have and the actions of that state agency, which is, you know, meant to address all those issues. Thank you very much for your time and for bye helping bye. us with this uh, issue. Note that to be immediately informed about the papers soon to be published in AJPH or about calls for papers, follow me on Twitter. The music is by Francis Jacob with, of course, a small surprise. And thank you for listening. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us at ajph.org.